0: Turn to John chapter 13. For the last seven or eight chapters, John has been dealing largely in this book with Jesus teaching to the crowds. And now for the next few chapters, he turns to Jesus teaching to the twelve apostles. and especially what Jesus does and says with them between the Last Supper and His crucifixion. And He records for us at the beginning of John chapter 13 this Last Supper. And the Last Supper is what we continue to celebrate today. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And This is something that is commanded by Him. And so it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful gift to us, and it's really uh, not what John focuses on in the beginning of John chapter 13. He, he gives us uh, some more of what Jesus taught at that time. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also when you uh, look at 1 Corinthians teach us more directly about uh, the meal and its significance and its purpose. Um, But here in John 13, we have another command that is given. Well, several other commands and instructions given by Jesus to his apostles. And the whole process from Last Supper to crucifixion is introduced and described at the beginning of John chapter thirteen with the words, "Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end." We're so used to reading and hearing big statements in John that they kind of roll; they just sort of roll over us and are gone. Kind of like, you know, you're hiding in your house and you've got all the windows boarded up and the hurricane comes and goes and you come out and you're like, all right, here we are. But this statement, it's, it's hurricane force. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And it's that statement that puts all of what we read next in the context of Christ's love leading inexorably to his death in a few chapters. John is not meant to be read verse by verse. You, know, you read that verse and it, on its own it, it seems to be communicating something big but it's really only when you are able to read In the broader context, through swaths of Scripture, you see what's going on. It's easy to forget that what's coming is the crucifixion, especially when it's taking chapter after chapter to get there. But this is where he starts telling the story of Christ's coming crucifixion. He loved them to the end, all the way to death. But not just all the way to death, but really, in another sense, all the way to the utmost of what love looks like while he's still alive. And so this puts what we're going to read in the context of that statement of Jesus' love loving them to the end, loving his who are in the world. And it also introduces Jesus' more immediate action of washing the apostles' feet and the supper that he shared with them, that last supper. And so we know, of course, that he commanded his apostles to celebrate the Last Supper and that, that that command comes down to us today and that we continue to celebrate the Last Supper. But do you also remember that he commanded them to wash one another's feet at that same meal? We better figure out what that means, right? Right? How many of you have ever been a part of uh, an event or any sort of foot-washing ceremony? A few, yep, Yeah. okay. I have, a couple of times. We're going to talk about it a little bit this week, and actually a little bit next week. Next week I'll tell you the story, teaser, make you come back. Next week I'll tell you the story of when I was out in the middle of the bush in Ethiopia and I got my feet washed. Next week, we're going to talk about receiving a foot washing. This week, we're going to talk about giving a foot washing. They're both very, very important. We'll see see them both in our text, and you'll see why we have to take two weeks on it. Well, the questions that we need to ask this morning... Make sense of it all is what is love according to Jesus' example here? What does love look like here in this passage that we're about to read? And how can we be like Jesus as we seek to love one another? It's easy to It's easy to ask the question, What would Jesus do? as we did for a while there, ask that question, right? Um, Some of you are old enough to remember asking that question. But it's harder to answer the question, isn't it? It's nice to say, I want to be like Jesus. But it's not at all an easy proposition to determine what that would mean. And so what we're going to do is we've got to start with that first question. What is love according to Jesus' example here? Before we can then turn around and say, I want to love like Jesus and here's what it's going to look like. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 1 through 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him, Jesus, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, "Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. (coughs) From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me." And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you, Paul. Before I get too far and forget, I just want to point out... <clears throat> At the end of verse 19, if you open up your Bible, you'll see that Jesus says, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. And at least that's the wording in the NASB. Most versions say something along those lines. And In some translations, you'll see that he is italicized. (coughs) And in in the world of Bible translation, or really in in any translation work, you're often supplying words that aren't explicitly there in the text to help the meaning of the words become clearer. And what they have done in Bible translation often is put words that are implied by the Greek or the Hebrew but aren't actually there in italics. And it's the the goal of the translators in doing that to communicate to you, the reader, more deeply what what the original text actually is. Okay, so you ought to be students, if you, are, if you are studying the Word of God, you ought to be students of the Word desiring to know what it actually says to the best of your ability. And so there are several clues like this that are given to you in the Bible as you read, and you ought to be paying attention to them, okay? <clears> okay. <throat> In this particular case, if you think about the word he being supplied by the translators, and and if you were to uh, study the Greek, what you would see is that I am he is a perfectly legitimate translation. And yet, the words that Jesus says are that you may believe that I am. That I am. And the importance of that will be lost on us unless we also are students of the word looking back into the Old Testament and remembering that God has always called himself the I am. When Moses is addressed by God and sent to the Israelites to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt, Moses asks God, Who will I tell them sent me? And God's response is, tell them that I am sent you. I am. And so, it's only by paying close attention throughout the Bible, okay, both to the Old Testament and to the New Testament, to the words that are given to us, translated into English, as well as the little hints that the translators show to us, that we notice these little things, that the, that the wording of Jesus in the Greek <clears throat> allows for both of those meanings to be understood. That he is claiming to be the I am at the same time as he is saying I am he. And I'm not going to go into the Greek to try to uh, explain how it all works to you, but I just want you to notice italics. Italics are there for a reason from the translator, and it's a gift to you to give you additional information that they can't really translate, because English isn't identical to Greek. And so you can't make everything exactly the same, but you can can get some additional information. Now, That reminds me, there's one other little clue that you see throughout the book of John and several other places in the New Testament, but especially in the book of John, that we saw in this particular text that I want you to notice. Verse 9. If you look at the text, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Or verse 8, Peter said to him. Or verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter. And you notice all those verbs are in the past tense, right? Said, said, came. And there's a little asterisk if you look in your Bible in front of those words. And that asterisk, if you go and you look it up at the beginning what what does an asterisk mean when there's an asterisk inserted you know normally in a book you would look down at the bottom for a footnote but <clears throat> footnotes are done differently in the bible right they're numbered and you can look them up on the side or maybe at the bottom an asterisk means <clears throat> that the translators have in order to help us in english with our reading translated a present tense verb as a past tense verb. And I wish that they hadn't. I wish that they would have just translated it the way it is because the way John writes is very uh, in your face. It's very immediate. It's very uh, present. It draws you into the moment. And one of the ways that he does that is by switching into the present tense as he's telling a story. And we do this in English, so it's not hard for us to understand, right? When you're telling a story, you'll say something like, so I went to the store the other day. We're talking in the past tense, right? Went to the store the other day. And I'm talking to the cashier, and he says to me, do you know what happened? Now, what did I do? I I switched from talking in the past tense to when the cashier started speaking, I switched to the present tense. He says to me. Right? We do this to make, to to draw you into a story. And really, John isn't the only writer in the New Testament that does this, but he's the primary writer who does it. And it has to do with his writing style. And again, this this is, I'm grateful that the translators will at least give you the asterisk so that you can tell what's going on. It's not at all uh, <clears throat> necessary for them to have changed the tense. So there you go. There's another, there's another Bible reading help to you that's, that's in the text for you to notice, for you to be helped as you're reading it. <clears throat> All through this chapter, he's making it an immediate, present sort of event. He's drawing you into it, helping you to be there that night during this final supper. That's his goal. And so it only means that we ought to not look at this as a, you know, um, some sort of a mental exercise or some sort of uh, academic thing to study without it affecting us. John's whole purpose throughout throughout the book, as he's written, is to draw us in, is to cause us to believe, is to tell it with as much power and immediacy as he can for our sake. The reader. Okay. Now, back to the text itself. Back to the story of that night, right? How does Jesus love them to the end? Well, the first thing that we have to realize is that his love has begun prior, right? This is not the start of his love to his apostles, to those <clears throat> who are in the world. It says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And so... <clears throat> What this means is that he is he is completing what he began before. He is completing he, what he began long before. Now, in one sense, <clears throat> the humility that washing the feet of the apostles demonstrates goes along perfectly with the humility that he took on when he became human in the first place. When he took on human flesh, that was an outflowing of his love for his own who were in the world. Right? But when did his love begin for his own who were in the world? Was it here on this night? No, we see having loved, so it's earlier than that. Was it when he first took on flesh? No, his love was prior to that. Really, he began to love them earlier than that. You can tell he began to love them earlier than that because the plan to come into the world came earlier than that, Right? <clears throat> And so his love was as long as the plan to come into the world and save them existed. That's as long as his love existed. right? Because the moment you plan to do something out of love for them, that that is proof of the love existing, right? And so here what we see is that Jesus' love began from all eternity, because that is when his plan to save his people was hatched. There is no beginning to his love. And when it says that he loved them to the end, in one sense, yes, it is referring to his death. But is that where his love ends? No. He loved them to the end, to, all the way to physical death on their behalf, all the way to being condemned in our place. But his love extends beyond that to all eternity as well. His love was not ended When his life was ended. And so, when we read that he, Jesus, loved them to the end, that is first and foremost a promise that his love will be. Not that it will come to an, an end, right? But that it will bear its intended purpose. It will never be cut short of what he intends it to be. And what he intends it to be is from all eternity to all eternity. And that is what he accomplishes. And that's really what John is speaking of. Why? Well, because he is heading towards death on our behalf, on, the, on behalf of the apostles, on behalf of those whom he has loved. And we read later on in John, we'll get to this at some point, in John chapter 15, who knows when we'll make it that far. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so by loving them on the path to death, Christ is demonstrating that his love is powerful. That his love is not incomplete, but he is completing his love. Now, this really isn't that hard to understand, um, but it's, it could be confusing pretty quickly. Um, so when you think of loving somebody to the end... <clears throat> I read a story about two friends who worked together uh, very closely for years and years. For fi- 15 years, they, they researched and published papers together. And uh, shortly before one of them died, the other one looked at him and said, you're not my friend anymore. Now, it's a sad story, right? Right? I also was reading a story with my son yesterday about two brothers who were inseparable, inventing together. They, they, they came up with deep-sea diving. They were the ones who invented the ability to have pressurized air from the surface down, began the process of recovering all of the sunken treasures throughout the world. Couldn't have done it without the... the close relationship that they had and yet they ended their life not speaking to one another that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about jesus loving them to the end you get what i'm saying (laughs) The love is not coming to an end. Well, I loved him all the way up until the moment when he did such and such to me. No, completed love is love that loves through those circumstances. So these two researchers that I was talking about, One says to the other, you know, John says to Fred, Fred, you're not even my friend anymore, and walks out the door. A couple days later, Fred gets a phone call from the doctor. You're going to die. Cancer is riddled through your body. And so, He makes two calls, and the second call, second person that he tells, is who? It's John. Fred loved John to the end. Do you see that? He said, it doesn't even matter... Whether you hate me now, I still love you enough that I call my wife and then I call you and tell you that I'm dying. This is Jesus. He's loving us to the end by heading towards death. Of course, that was not one researcher dying for another researcher. <clears throat> Jesus loved even as Peter denied him. Jesus was dying for Peter. Right? What else do we see in this loving them to the end? Well, we see his love demonstrated not just in his death, which we haven't made it to yet, but which is writ large over the whole book and that we can't avoid. We can't talk about this chapter without talking about the context of his coming death, right? But we also see it in the immediate actions that Jesus takes in this passage. We see his love, we see him completing his love by washing their feet. If you love somebody, nothing will be too low for you to do for them. Nothing will be too low for you to do on their behalf. And so I ask you why does a mother change the baby's diaper? Why does the mother feed the baby? Why does a mother wipe the bottom? Why does the mother get poop on her hands? Day in, day out. This is the work of love. Now, a mother can't, a mother can't leave her child to suffer these, the indignities of life without help. To, to, a mother to leave the baby is to leave the, the child to death, right? And what God says is, can a mother forget her offspring? And of course the answer is no, and he says, yes, even even a mother may forget, but I will not. I will not forget. Even a mother may stop loving. I will not stop loving. I will complete my love. And so, why does a mother change a diaper? Maybe because it stinks. Why does a mother feed the baby? Maybe because she wants the baby to stop crying. There's a lot of ways for us to serve That aren't actually love is what I'm trying to get at, right? They can be, our service can be motivated by all kinds of things besides love. And this is important for us to recognize. But Jesus' service to his apostles of washing their feet at this time comes out of him completing his love for them, it comes out of love. Not out of anger, not out of irritation, not out of any kind of sinful motive, not out of utilitarianism, not because somebody has to do it, but because he loves them. Right? And we know ourselves, we know our hearts, we know that our love is impure at its best. We know that our service has Mixed up motives in it. That we serve because we love and also because we're just really sick of hearing the screaming. That we serve because we love and also because we want people to think better of us or because we don't want them to think that we're a bad boss or a bad mother or a bad father, right? And so our own motives are all mixed up together, and yet Christ's motives are perfect. His love is perfect. It's complete. He loves them to the end. This is not the first time that we've seen foot washing in the life of Jesus described as love. Love. Turn to Luke chapter 7 and we'll read another story about foot washing. <clears throat> this time instead of Jesus washing his apostles' feet, what happens is that a woman washes his feet. Luke 7:44 through 48. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. It's easy to think that... Uh, that foot washing, you know. There's if you read if you read this passage, the foot washing of this woman to Jesus, right? It's easy to think of that foot washing as um, her love, and it is her love. It is an act of her love. But we, we skipped the intro to the story, right? Jesus tells this long parable, and the point is given at the end where he says, she has been forgiven much. Therefore, she loves much, right? So, her love is flowing out of the fact that she has been forgiven much and it's flowing into the action that she takes on behalf of Jesus by washing his feet, wiping them with her hair, with her tears, anointing them with perfume. This very intimate act of foot washing is given as an example of the love that she has, but the love that she has flows from something deeper, doesn't it? Well, it's the same with Jesus. The the, the service that that he provides, this act of foot washing, is a loving act for his disciples. It comes out of his love for them. But it comes out of something deeper. And so, the question that if we're trying to learn how to answer the question what does it mean for us to love it cannot be at the surface level of serve right it it has to flow out of some something deeper that's there that we that we have for that person. This is why you can serve people without love. You can ask the question, what would Jesus do? And you can be asking it in order to build up your reputation in front of man. Well, Jesus would wash their feet. I better wash their feet. That way people will think that I'm like Jesus. Does that flow out of love? Is washing their feet then in that moment an act of love? No. Our love has to precede our acts of love. Just as Christ's love preceded his acts of love. His love was from all eternity towards those who, love, who, who, who are called according to his purposes, right? Those whom he has chosen, his own, who are in the world, he is loving them to the end. This act that he takes of foot washing, <clears throat> just as the woman's foot washing flows out of the actual love that is within so Christ's foot washing flows out of the love that is within. Now this, this really, it's quite simple. That, that inside feeling that you have and that external action that you have of love, okay? they can't be separated from each other the moment that they are separated from each other, you don't have love in either case. If you have what feels like love for somebody and yet you refuse to serve them, whatever that feeling is, I don't know what it is, but it's not love. Because love to use a common phrase, is a verb, right? And it's not just a verb that, is, that takes place in your psyche or in your heart or something like that. It is, it is something that overflows out into outward action. And that's what Jesus demonstrates here. He demonstrates his love that is already within him through his outward actions of love that he performs So it is with us. If we are seeking to love like Christ, our love has to be there prior and then has to flow into the action. Likewise, if you simply take the action, it's possible to take the action without any love. Without it being motivated by love, it isn't love that you're performing. So Jesus Jesus is demonstrating his loving them to the end through heading towards death, suffering on their behalf. He's demonstrating his loving them to the end through his service to them of washing their feet. He also demonstrates his love for them by preparing them for the difficulties that lay ahead for them. He does this in several ways. One, by warning them, as he has several times, that his death is coming. But more particularly in this passage, the difficulty that he addresses is The fact that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. It's not just that he's going to die, but that one of the twelve, one of the apostles, one of the closest circle that Jesus had chosen himself would be the one to betray him to that death. And this indeed could cause them and us to stumble. Couldn't it? And so Jesus warns. He warns them ahead of time. And what does he say? <clears throat> he says he's telling them ahead of time so that they will believe, so that we will believe. Verse 20 continues that warning when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Taken out of context, it's easy to read that verse purely as a puffing up of the servant of God. He who receives whomever I send receives me. Well, I have been sent. (laughs) Unless you receive me, you don't receive Christ. Unless you receive Christ, you don't receive God. But that's not the direction that Jesus is taking this. In context, it comes right after him saying, I know the ones I have chosen. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that you may believe. I just summarized 18, 19, right? Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. What does that indicate? It indicates that even Judas can be used by God to draw men to himself. Judas was sent out by Christ along with the rest of the twelve to preach, to teach. He was sent out doing miracles. He was chosen by Christ with Jesus Christ, knowing he would betray him from the beginning when he was chosen. And it would be very easy were it not for the fact that Jesus reminds us, I knew this was coming, I used him anyway. Whoever I send, no matter what they turn out to be in the end, If I send them, you can receive me through them. And this is a beautiful thing because what it indicates is that your pastor does not have to be perfect. Not only does your pastor not have to be perfect, your pastor may abandon the faith in the end. And your faith is not to be shaken because he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. You can receive Jesus Christ through wicked men. And in fact, you will receive Jesus Christ only through wicked men. By God's grace, it won't be through a pastor that abandons the faith, who makes shipwreck of his life and of the faith. But even were that disaster to happen, it pales in comparison to Judas, one of the twelve himself, having turned against Jesus Christ. And so I don't care how hypocritical Some pastor is that you've sat under. I don't care how money-grubbing the person is that warned you against your sin. I don't care how often they've sinned against you. I don't care what they made their life into in the end. If they declared God's Word to you, it was God's Word that you received. And you receive it. You receive it by faith. And you will be receiving Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him. Do that. Do not stumble because of men like Judas. Woe to Judas for causing some to stumble. Woe to those who make shipwreck of their faith. Paul himself speaks of the danger to himself, saying, so that having run the race, I will not have run in vain. And yet what we have here is Jesus loving those who are his in the world to the end. Now I, re- I go back to that, not just to repeat something that sounds good. I go back to that because I want you to see that Jesus Christ brings to completion that love even in a wicked man like Paul. You think, Paul? No, no, I mean like me. Like you. Paul knows the danger of the possibility of having run the race in vain. And yet he knows that completing that race is only possible for him because of the work of Jesus Christ being completed in him, the love of Christ that has been poured out on our behalf. And so Judas gets his feet washed too. And that's one of the next things that we need to recognize is we seek to love like Jesus loved. He is generous with his service. He does not only serve those who love him back. Often if we love somebody, serving them will mean serving others that do not love us. It will mean serving People like Judas. <clears throat> you know, think about, uh, think about the act of preaching. Here I am, I'm standing in front of all of you, and I, I preach, right? And I have a choice. Either I can preach by faith in such a way that you are able to reject what I say would hurt my feelings. No, really. I mean, it would. It, it would be painful. It would hurt my feelings. I can preach in that way, or I can preach in a safe way where I make sure to sound good and not to say anything that could possibly be construed as me putting myself out there on a limb in such a way that you could possibly reject me, Right? because I know that there's probably one or two of you out there who will get angry at me and harm me if I, if I take that risk of putting myself out there. So my choice is whether I will serve you in love or whether I will seek to protect myself. Right? I cannot seek to only serve those people that I know are going to love me back in return. It's impossible. And it's not only impossible because I don't know the future. It's also impossible because otherwise, I would have to say, no no, non-Christians are allowed in here. And no... You know, no people who have been sinning recently allowed in here. And we'd have, to, we'd have to limit this to, you know, you but not me being here. Because I've sinned. Christ washes Judas' feet. Could he have washed the other eleven and then skipped Judas'? Well, yes, I suppose technically he could have, right? Technically, I could say, uh, I know you're not receiving this. You get out of here, you know. But that's not the way that it works, is it? That's not the way that love works. He loves even when his act of love is rejected. Now you may be thinking, well, was he actually loving Judas? Didn't Judas, Wasn't Judas not one of his own, and so he didn't love them to the end, etc., etc.? Cetera, et cetera. But I'm not talking about Judas, I'm talking about Peter. Peter rejected the foot washing, not Judas. Right? Peter's the one who said... Never! You're not going to wash my feet? Peter wants nothing to do with it. How many of you have ever, out of your love for somebody, sought to serve them only to have them angry at you for loving them? Anybody? Not the only one? Good. If any of you have had kids that you actually loved, you've had this happen to you. It happens all the time that the people we love reject the very act of our love for them. So how does Jesus love them to the end? He loves them in spite of their rejection. He loves them in spite of it meaning that he's opening himself up to be hurt by people who don't love him. He loves them generously. He loves them preparing them for the future. Again, thinking about kids. You know, the majority of your, your loving of them is preparing them for the future. And He loves them by serving them. Now, this is a classic text you've probably heard before being used to define servant leadership. And I want to take a second to address that. (laughs) Servant leadership was brought into the corporate world and and the political world and all over the place, theoretically being modeled on this passage, uh, biblical principles. And in a sense, it's biblical. In a sense, the principles are biblical. But let me ask you a question. Step into the corporate world for a second and think about the CEO, CEO that has embraced a model of servant leadership. Okay? Why does a CEO embrace a model of servant leadership? It's because he thinks that he can get better work out of the employees, right? It's a leadership strategy, is it not? It's for the purpose of helping the bottom line. Am I right? Is this flowing out of love? No. (laughs) Now, am I saying that it's impossible for CEOs to love their employees? No, I'm not. That's not my point, all right? But my point is that you cannot divorce the idea of Jesus serving his apostles from the fact that it's flowing out of his eternal love for them, or you've lost the entire thing, right? There's nothing left if it's just service. That is cynical. To serve your employees in order to improve the bottom line is a cynical way of looking at your employees, right? To serve them because you love them is an entirely different thing. And so it would be better to say that Jesus defines serving love here than it is to say that he defines serving leadership. Does that make sense? Is Jesus leading? Sure. Jesus never stops leading, right? Why am I telling you to follow after him right now if he's not leading in this passage? Of course, he's leading. But good leadership always means being ahead of your followers, and Jesus certainly is here. And very often, what we're tempted to do is attempt to lead from behind, And here's the thing about servant leadership. Much of the time, servant leadership is taken as justification for for attempting to lead from behind in a quote unquote humble sort of way. If you want your followers to be humble and loving, be humble and loving. Yes, absolutely. This is what Jesus does. If you want your followers to serve one another, serve them. This is what Jesus does. If you want them to be self-serving, proud, and backbiting and cynical in how they treat you, be those things. But self-sacrificing service is not by nature a demonstration of leadership. It is by by nature a demonstration of love. I'm going to say that again. When you are sacrificial in your service to others, that is first and foremost an act of love. That's what it is flowing out of. It flows out of love, and it ends up being leadership. And if you flip those things around, remember what I said before, we don't have love left. And so if you want to know how to be a good leader... And you want to look at this text and learn how to be a good leader. If you want to know how to be a father. If you want to know how to be a mother. If you want to know what you should look like as a husband. There's a lot to learn here. Prepare your children. Prepare your wife for the future. Don't be afraid of being hurt. Don't shy away from saying hard things. Don't let anything be beneath your dignity, either to do for them or to talk about with them. Don't be afraid of confronting them. Don't be afraid of forcing your love on them. But serving is not nearly enough. You must love them.